today we've got a very special guest on the podcast, which is Mandy Hickson. Jazz hands. Jazz hands. Good morning, Mandy. How are you? Morning. Morning. Very good. Thanks, Martin. Sir? Good. Yeah, good. Really, really good. Looking forward to speaking with you. Um, looking forward to working with you this year. So for people yeah. who don't know, uh, Mandy is one of the speakers at our 2024 leadership retreat in May. May the 9th, you are going to be joining us. And uh, we can't wait. We've got 50 senior leaders from all different industries, uh, top two tiers in an organization who are going to be in attendance. And yeah, we're not going to spoil too much uh, around what you're going to do there, but we're really looking forward to that. And we're also doing a couple of other collaborations with other clients as well, aren't we? But yeah. we just thought it was good, Mandy, to get you on the pod uh, running up to the retreat and just um, get to know you a little bit and see what you've been doing lately and we maybe we'll just chew the fat on all things performance teamwork and see if we can leave the listeners with a few nuggets so first of all mandy um just confirm for me what your official title was in the military what rank did you get to before you left um, and and you was in the ref wasn't you so uh, what what was you in the ref uh, basically i flew the tornado gr4 so i was a uh, just a flight lieutenant so not particularly high ranking, and there's reasons for that as well that we can talk about. Um, but yes, I flew the Tornado GR4 on the front line. I saw active service over Iraq. Uh, I did three tours of duty over in the um, in the Middle East. Um, and yeah, and I left 12 years ago and have been running my own business experience from the front line ever since. And what? how many years did you do in total in your military service? I did 17 years as a full-time um, uh, pilot and then when I left I did eight years as a reservist so 25 years of total service for the Royal Air Force yeah wow. just, just before Covid actually you put my level of service to shame Mandy I think oh, I did minimum, minimum requirement you know five years an hour well, that was yes. me uh, but but even then I remember my time fondly in the military and one of the things that I always circle back to was I, I think I learned a lot socially uh, in the military around how to navigate social circles, how to, um, you know, apply emotional intelligence, read group and power dynamics, yeah. learn what serves you well and what doesn't. And I think the military is really good for that because you've got no choice. You're in a confined space yeah. for an amount of time with lots of different personality types, aren't you? Yeah, you are. And I think the other thing that um, I think is one of the big lessons that I took from the leadership, as you say, around that communication skills, is that, you know, doesn't matter what job you're doing, you're always going to be talking to very high-ranking people and people right at the start of their careers, apprentices that are coming in at 18. And it's where you, how you adapt the way that we speak and that we ensure that our messages are really understood and that you you feel approachable to both areas, you know, that you're talking. And I think that's something that's really, really, like you say, held me in good stead as well, because... You know, actually, one of the comments I nearly always get from everybody is, you're just so approachable, you're so real. And I think that's what the military give you, is that ability for anybody to be able to come up to to talk to you. Yeah. It is, I also say as well, Mandy, I'd love to get your opinion on this, because I work with a lot of customers, as you do, and we at T2 are working with a lot of leadership groups in organizations. And one of the interesting cultural differences in civilian world and in the modern day is this notion of how well people fit into hierarchies and structures and accept them. Yeah. And I think we live in a world now where, and, and for some reasons, rightly so, that we challenge a little bit more around authority in the hierarchy, whereas in the military, 
I think what it did for me was it, although I didn't always like it at times, respecting the chain of command and actually understanding the value of a hierarchy and not being afraid of that or seeing it for anything that it wasn't was something that by the time I came out into civilian street, I was able to slot in quite easily. Um, and I know there's a lot of research going on at the minute around the military and what that hierarchical and authoritative uh, environment should look like for future and the future generations. But I, I, I find it fascinating, this conversation around, I still believe hierarchies are generally more purposeful and produced than flat structures for a number of reasons around accountability and around ownership and that, that type of stuff. But it's an interesting area for debate, isn't it? It is. I, I do think there's, um, I think there's definitely two sides of that. So when you've look at, say, so let's look at a flight deck of an aircraft. Um, you know, you've got the captain and the first officer and they worked really hard on giving that first officer a voice when they were doing a lot of human factors training and work on looking at why were airplanes crashing. And it was nearly always the human in the system. In fact, 75% of the time it's down to the human, not anything to do with the technology. And so they really wanted to give this person a voice. And so what they worked hard at is to flatten the gradient. And when they flattened the gradient, it was a nightmare because there was no one in charge. And they realized that actually that's not the gradient you need. You need there to be not this, a very steep hierarchical gradient, but a much flatter gradient where this person does have a voice and yet there's still the respecting of authority and there is still the decision maker. So I think what you're seeing there is what we actually is great then also for society as a whole within the corporate structure is it's empowering people to say, actually, I I do want to, I've got a really good opinion. And I talk a lot about the power of cognitive diversity within our teams. And I think in the fact, in the past, we focused so often, don't we, about cultural diversity and gender diversity, but it's cognitive diversity that actually makes a difference. You know, if you constantly recruit from the same pool of people from your university, traditionally university graduates or whatever it is, you're just going to get the same people with the same thinking. And it's about recognising that, you know, guess what? Get people from a diverse background, not just about their colour, but about their thinking, you know, neurodiverse people. And suddenly it might not be the most, you know, um, let's just say it's not a team where you go, oh, they're all people like me and it's just wonderful. But you're going to get a different result. And that's really what's important in the end as well, is that we've got different ways of thinking. And we're seeing that with this next generation that are coming up. They're actively choosing not to go to university. You know, some of the brighter people are saying, I don't want £60,000 of the debt to just basically socialise for three years. Actually, I want to actively seek out something different. I want to go in straight into a career. I want to find a job that can give me what I want. And I think that's brilliant. And I think that that's where we need to be looking a lot more now is that sort of cognitive diversity within our teams. Yeah, it, it absolutely, it's fascinating that to me because it's a, it, it mirrors a lot of what we're doing here at T2. So yes, you don't want it too far and too high and distant. You can't have it flat. So having it in this, it, it, you know, in this gradient is probably the most optimal because we have this saying here at T2 that says the problem with the shared responsibility is that it's nobody's problem. And actually, I'm working with a former Navy SEAL commander, Rich Davini, at the minute, who was who wrote the book, The Attributes, 25 Attributes of Optimal Performance. And he talks about these concepts from the military called dynamic subordination. Dynamic subordination says great teams operate, even if I'm the captain or I'm in charge, they, when they know when to subordinate to members of the team because their skill sets, traits, and characteristics are more applicable for this particular thing, so I'm going to subordinate to you and you're going to step up. 
that fluidity in teams is where high performance can actually occur. So it, yeah. it mirrors your thought, thought process then. And I think on that one, something that works really, really well for the military, and you might have come across this yourself, is, is the understanding of the why. So it's all very well and good. If you think about the traditional hierarchical gradient where someone says, okay, Martin, you're going to do that. And you go, but why? So if you tell me why I'm going to do it, now I understand. So if you take it back to the military concept, you're going to cross this river. They get to the river. They can't cross the river. That's the mission over. But if you say you've got to cross the river because you need to establish a supply line to people on the other side, they can say, okay, we can't cross the river there where we were ordered to cross the river. But now we're going to work out the why. How can we get there still to actually do our mission? And it's exactly the same with that dynamic subordination. That's really what you're trying to foster there in, in teams is by, you know, give the give our, our the people that we work with the task, allow them to get on with it, but give them a very, very clearly defined area as to why they're doing it. What's the point of it? Because then they it's up to them to find the the new routes around crossing that river, the metaphorical river. And I think that's what's so, so important. And um, and I think that all then ties into the empowerment of teams that we look at, that leadership's not a title, it's an action, that we can all demonstrate that at every single stage of our careers. So, Mandy, question. Um, transitioning from the military to the corporate civilian world, we've both made that transition. Um, I'm interested, from your perspective, what you found the biggest difference in teams, organizations, cultures, and the way we go about performance from the military to the corporate uh, civilian world? And if so, what was that difference? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one, actually, because I think the biggest one for myself is, is recognizing that the military is not this panacea of greatness. There are bits that it does really, really well, but there are also bits that, you know, in the civilian world, the corporate world do really well as well. And the thing that, that I think was my biggest factor of that grass is not always greener is that I actually loved, in the military, I love the can-do attitude. I love the fact that when someone says they're going to do something, they do it. It's not a debate. You don't need to check on them. They will do it, and they will do it normally on time, and they're always going to turn up on time. And then you get to the, the corporate world, and you give someone a job, and they sort of go, mm, that's not really in my remit. And you think... What? What? I'm so sorry. And that's that's when actually businesses talk all the time about these silos that seem to form, whereby you might ask a different department, could they? And they go, well, that's not really our job. And that is really frustrating because that is something you don't get in the military. If there is a problem, everyone tries to come together. Um, but the one thing that I do like about the corporate world is that I do see, you know, the cultures and there's a huge disparity across the different organisations that you work with. And you must see this as well, to be honest, Martin. You know, some I walk into, and I can tell you within seconds of arriving, they've got an incredible culture. And it's not just the makeup of the building, but that does help. If you provide a really nice working environment for people, they, they actually flourish in that environment. And that's something the military don't have. I mean, I go back now to the military and I think, oh my God, it looks really run down. Even our flagships, you know, some of the buildings just look like they're peeling paint. You know, and they say, well, we're not spending the money on that. Well, if you don't spend the money on that, why are people proud to be part of that organisation? You have to create the infrastructure that matches the people that you want to recruit. And that's what the corporate world do really well. Yeah, I agree. I would tend to agree with all that. And I think 
you know, some of the pros of, of the military are definitely things like timekeeping, conscientiousness, yeah. accountability, you know, and I guess it's almost ingrained in you standard operating procedures and, you you know, you do certain things in a certain order, you know, on command. And I think, so there's a lot to be said for that. But in terms of the progressive nature of doing things differently, of cultures, of questioning why we do that and is it still fit for purpose, I think the civilian world is... Is far more advanced in in that context. I think organisations are genuinely more open to saying, "We've been doing it this way now for three years, but is that still relevant for the the the, the situation we're in?" And I could still probably go back to the military now, and there's elements of the basic training that is probably the same as 25 years ago because it, yeah. if it's not broke, don't don't fix it, right? Absolutely. And um, so I, I would agree with you on that. Yeah. So um. In your last few years then, Mandy, you've been going around working with many organizations. Um, I'm currently writing my second book, Mandy. This is not a plug, but it's just generally to feed into the question. Um, I'm writing my second book called I Am Human, Pain and Pleasure. And it's about, I'm writing about generational shift and around how we in modern day society are responding to enduring pain and discomfort while seeking pleasure and reward. And the whole concept of the book is that for years, as, as we've evolved by being able to balance the two, we've yeah. survived by enduring pain and discomfort and, and, and you know, showing resilience and all the things we've need, but by also having purpose and fulfillment and receiving pleasure and reward. And my whole questioning through the book is I think maybe the scales have tipped a little bit. Maybe we live in this comfort crisis where it's all about pleasure, fulfillment and reward and we're not remotely geared up at times to deal with pain and discomfort. So very provocative, but um, I've put my heart and soul into it and hopefully it's going to help people. Um, what's your view on that as societally right now? Do you Would you concur and, and do you feel like the opportunity might be for us to start getting better again at interpreting and enduring pain, a bit of pain and discomfort which comes with life? I think that's brilliant. I think you're you're absolutely nailing it there, actually. And we're seeing it even if you let let's take it back to primary school type thing. So let's take it to our youngsters. You know, we've stopped there being winners and losers at sports day. We've stopped teams winning events because we don't like there to be losers. And what we're actually creating is this, it's always just about taking part. It's always just about, you know, the enjoyment of everything. But without therefore building any layers of resilience that we need. And you know, it's it's this classic world, isn't it, where we talk all the time about we need our youngsters, we need our, our companies, we need everyone to be more resilient. And yet we are fostering a society where we are losing our resilience because guess what? You're never losing at anything. So you're not building up any skill set to say, oh, it's a bit tough. You know, it's all about the pleasure. And I think you're absolutely right. I, I think, you know, I think it's a, it, it is quite a provocative question to ask. Um, but I did Kilimanjaro about four years ago now. And the, our leader was a lovely woman, Jay Bradshaw, and she's, and she's done six of the seven peaks at the moment. And she has endured some pretty tough stuff. I mean, you know, I've got a huge respect for her. And she said, you know, there were 20 women. And she said, some of you won't make this, by the way, at the start. You know, it's a really tough challenge, Kilimanjaro. People think it's a walk in the park because so many people do it. But she said, it's not. It's brutal. You're, you're camping you know, you're going to get ill. Lots of you will be sick with altitude sickness. Um, and it's about how resilient you are. But she said it's about grade three fun. Now, and I was like, what? I've never heard that expression for grade three fun. And I said, what is grade three fun? She went, you will hate it at the time. 
but you will get so much pleasure out of out of your achievement factor. And when we were on summit night, and let's just say I had a rather upset stomach of the lower quality, um, of the lower end, and in a snowstorm in a blizzard in, in the pitch black, that's not a pleasant place to be having to remove all of your clothing basically on a on a mountainside. And I remember thinking, this is grade three fun. I am hating this. I was crying for quite a lot of it. But I can tell you now, when I look back, that is one of my proudest achievements. And it's one of the moments that I think is probably one of the highlights of my life was Kilimanjaro. And so that's a really interesting one, isn't it? That pain, pleasure, you know, actually, you can't get a better example of it than that, where, you know, and I said to all the women we were with, bloody hell, this is brutal. They said, oh, my God, if you're finding it brutal, what are we going to be finding it? But we were all struggling. But, you know, everyone was laughing about it. And afterwards, that sense of elation, having reached that target, was phenomenal. And it's incredibly bonding. So I do think that you are absolutely right that we, we especially we've created with our, our younger generation that are coming through, it's all just about the pleasure. And I don't want to be work. Why should I be working for five days a week? What? You know, it's not about that. Why should I be having to put in the hours? I don't want to do that. Well, okay, you don't want to do that, but you can't get the reward at the end of it either. You know, there's a balance. There's a reason that our, perhaps my generation, we've worked incredibly hard and we're reaping the benefits of that. You can't just come in at this point now and go, it's brilliant, because you've got to put the graft in. Yeah, it's fascinating to sort of to debate that because... I talk about the three psychological states we can be in in the book, which is threat state, neutral state, or challenge state. And what I'm trying to explain with those terminologies is exactly what you've just said there, Mandy, is we're programmed to go into threat state, which is our survival mode, which has kept us alive this long, and it's very important in our evolution. So the threat state is when we're completely honed in on something that is genuinely a threat to us, and we're either going to fight or flight. Yeah. Um, and your body is designed to release cortisol, tunnel vision, blood flow to the muscles, increase your heart rate, and you're going to fight the fight or you're going to get the hell out of here, right? Neutral state is the state which I think is the most damaging to us as we're talking right now in this generation, which is this state of comfort. And I'm neither in the threat and I'm neither feeling under threat, but I'm not pushing myself into challenge state either. I'm just comfortable. And in the book, The Comfort Crisis, Michael Easter talks about this a lot. We've created this world where it's very easy to sit at neutral state and be comfortable. And um, and then we've got the challenge state, which is ultimately what you did on Kilimanjaro, where you say, I'm going to push myself into something that's going to cause me pain, discomfort. I'm not so sure that I can even do it. Um, it carries a level of risk. But if I can enjoy this and do it, on the other side, there will be great fulfillment and reward. And that's what we call the challenge state. It requires that healthy level of consequence and suffering. But ultimately, then I'm going to gain something significant that I can't get in the comfort zone, in the neutral state. And that's going to, you know, build my confidence, give me resilience. It's going to give me reward and recognition. And I think what we need to do and what I do with my three children, Mandy, is I'm my girls are 16 and, and 14 now, and they are absolutely following in suit because I'm saying to them, push yourself into that challenge state mode as much as you possibly can. That's where the growth is, you know? Yeah, absolutely right. And it's really interesting, isn't it, as well? Because when I reflect on my own sort of corporate world in which I'm in now, I say yes to everything. And then I get terrified because I think, why have I said yes to that? That's so outside my comfort zone. I mean, a classic example of that was um, 
I spoke at a big event in Ireland about four years ago, and it's an event I really love. It's at the big convention centre in Dublin. There were about 4,000 people there. You know, there's like, like Boris Johnson was speaking, John Cleese. There was just, you know, review big names, Karen Brady, Richard Branson. And they'd said, would I speak? And I was like, oh, absolutely, yeah, fine. In my comfort zone. I know that sounds crazy. I'm a speaker. I can be, whether I'm speaking to 4,000 or two, doesn't really matter. Loved it. Then they said, we've never had a speaker with such high... Um, like feedback, would you come back as the MC? And I said, well, I've never MC'd before. And they went, oh, well, it'll be fine. You'll be great. And I went, oh. And MCing is a really different skill set to being a speaker. Being a speaker is about you. You go, here I am. Da, 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 da. Being the MC is being on the side of all of the delegates and you're taking them on the journey. And it's not just standing up and introducing somebody. It's way more than that. It's about listening constantly. It's about making the links. It's about adding humour. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I can do this. And they said, you'll be fine. And I did it. And I absolutely loved it. And then the next year, I, in January, just gone, they said, Mandy, would you mind just doing the two, like, keynote closing interviews? Where, yeah, well, I'm not an interviewer. I mean, you know, normally you get someone from there is in Ireland, it's RTE, you know, our BBC equivalent. And they said, yeah, but we think you'd be really good. I was like, yeah, but this is Wim Hof and Christian Horner. No, these are not insignificant guests. You want... And they were like, yeah. And I was like, but they're hour-long interviews. And they were like, you'll be fine. And again, my husband went, I'm not sure you should take those. I think that's too much. You've not got enough time to prep. Um, and I said, well, I'll say yes. And then I absolutely bricked it. You know, I, I could feel my stress bucket filling up. And I always refer to the stress bucket. I think it's a, such a great analogy. And we talk about it in um, flying all the time. You know, imagining that that bucket of just layer upon layer of stress and it's controlling what you can control within that bucket to create the capacity to deal with the here and now. And so we often find our bucket filling up with superfluous issues that are completely outside of our control. Be that, I don't know, the energy crisis, what's going on with mortgage rates. You know, you can't do anything about it. And yet they stress us out. Focus on what is within your sphere of influence. So I thought, what is within my sphere of influence? It's about doing the research. But I only had one day. And I had two speeches on that day. So I thought, right, what can I do? Uh, I know I can download all the podcasts that they've done in the past and get as much information that I can now remember. But I was driving for seven hours. Well, OK, I'll get my dictaphone out. On, I'll listen on podcasts and record my questions as I'm going along. So I managed to do all of those. But it's about finding the way you can do and control what is within your sphere of influence. And I think accept opportunities, even if it scares you witless, say yes and then think, how can I do it? Absolutely. Because ultimately, the, the the psychological and chemical sort of biochemistry behind all of this is that we need a healthy balance of those chemicals in our brain, those reward chemicals of dopamine, yeah. oxytocin, and serotonin combined with that healthy level of cortisol and adrenaline when things scare the life out of us. And in the balance is where we're going to be able to straddle this situation where we're able to endure a bit of pressure, pain and suffering, but we're also able to then seek and, and receive true fulfillment, pleasure and reward rather than avoiding any of that, sitting in our comfort zone, our neutral state. And then what happens is that when things do perce are perceived as a threat, because we haven't been pushing into challenge enough, we sort of catastrophize the stress response and we've not, we're not able to deal with it as well. So it's almost like you train your muscles to, to become more resilient and taught for physical endeavors. Well, you need to train this a little bit and push yourself to be able to become more robust and resilient 
in the face of adversity. So I absolutely agree. And I think with three young, young children myself, I think if there's if my life's work from this point on, Mandy means anything, it's if we can get to you know all, all people in all walks of life because it's not just strictly down to generations, but if we can certainly get to lower end of millennials, Generation Z, and what's coming through generation. Generation Alpha and Beta, and we can say to them, look, if with a bit of understanding, if you know where, where to push and where to grow and you know how to endure the feelings and thoughts that you have, you're going to be a little bit better equipped to be able to deal with that. But in the absence of pushing into that challenge there, like we're talking about now, you are not going to build up the muscle memory, the confidence, the courage to be able to find what I call true fulfillment, which is always on the other side of adversity. Completely, it, really is. It, it, it absolutely is. And I love hearing you talking about your girls there, actually, because I think our parenting style, you know, is so important to the people that they're going to become. I mean, I know that's obvious and everyone's, that's for generations, everyone said, well, of course, that's just screamingly obvious. But if you look, say, for yourself and myself, you know, former military, my husband was former military. So we've got this big hill behind our house. And when any friends would come around, we'd say, okay, we're going to go and do night manoeuvres. And you could see our friends going like this what we say it's all right we'll give them a glow stick and we'll say go onto this hill and it's pitch black there's not much lighting and you're going to hide and we're going to come out and find you like a basically a night exercise you know i'm going to find you with the dog you know and you can see the kids go oh my god this is the most exciting thing they have ever done in their lives well my kids grew up doing that you know we go and do brain scramblers yeah roll down the hill as fast as you can yes you might feel sick and you might hurt your head well, you know what, I'm sure you'll be fine. And you can see we have children that literally say to us, oh, my goodness, I remember brain scramblers. I remember night exercises at your house. Because they were never doing those sorts of things with their own parents because we are the risk takers. We are the ones, yeah, climb to the top of that tree, but safety first, make sure you can get down because I'm not coming up to get you. Be accountable for your own action of going up the tree. That's fine. Yes, occasionally we had a broken bone. But you know what? That's part of life. And, you know, but you will have other parenting styles that won't push them, that say, don't don't climb the tree. Yeah. You might fall. And if you constantly are, are basically putting all the negative thoughts, then all you're thinking is, I might fall, I might fall, you know. And so actually they don't climb the tree. And so actually you're going to end up with very, very, which has not helped me now because they're, they're basically very strapping six foot six uh, young men who are just very challenging and have decided to just go travelling around the world together. So they're off at the moment. They're in Southeast Asia, and I don't, I don't even dare to think about what they're risking at the moment. But there we go. Awesome, Mandy. Just one, one final question from me, um, and then I'm going to get you to ask me any question you want to uh, that I will answer to finish the pod. But going back to what you did in the military, and again, I know at the retreat you're going to share much more with our with our customers and the delegates, but. Getting on a jet and flying, being solely responsible for being in control of that jet, flying at very fast speeds, conducting very complex and challenging uh, operations. There's a lot of there's a lot of potential threat state in all of that. Like I've just described, there's a lot of what if, what if, what if we crash? What if we run out of fuel? What if the plane drops from the sky? What if I get it wrong? What if, what if, what if, and I'm guessing, therefore, you've had to desensitize yourself to that and condition yourself to that in order to be able to be as calm as you can to operate as cognitively as you can in that moment. So I'm guessing my my question would be, 
is what do you think enabled you to do that? Is it the sheer repetition of the training that causes the desensitization, the programming in the brain of what to do, standard operating procedures, I've got miles in the bank, I know this is, is it that or is it something you've got to do to intercept those thoughts, rationalize and calm yourself and and, and crack on? I, I'd be re- as, a, as a fighter pilot or a jet pilot, I'd like to sort of ask you how, what your thoughts were on that. It's a mixture of the two things, actually. I think the the, the training that you get is phenomenal. Um, so you're not going to just get into a jet and suddenly start flying at 600 miles an hour. It's the stepping stones to get there. You know, five years of training, each aircraft type that you fly is going at double the speed. So that when you're doing it, you're not thinking, oh, you know, you, your, your brain is becoming desensitized to that sort of level of threat. But also the training that you get, for example, in the simulator, you know, before you go to a war zone, you're flying in a simulator and they'll all be loading the maps of the area that you're flying in. They make it quite hot in the simulator. You know, all of those little things that are creating an environment whereby they're going to be launching surface-to-air missiles at you in the simulator and you will practice the exact manoeuvres you'll be doing. So there is that level of repetition of tasks so that when something happens, it's not a shock. But also it's the level of planning, so not just the training. You know, when you plan a mission, you're trying to think of every what-if scenario. And it's something that the businesses don't do as well, I know. It's that crisis planning. It's almost go sitting there and saying, what are the worst threats that could happen to our business? And what plan? Almost running like a bow tie level of, of planning to say, um, okay, what are the defences that we can put in place if that happens, if that happens, if that happens? So that when it does happen, you go, it's not a shock. It's not a crisis. We're pulling out a pre designed plan for that and there is the difference between an emergency a crisis and something that's been thought about and those are the most resilient most robust companies are the ones that have done that and that's exactly the same in flying if we've thought about it it's not an emergency and a best example was when i was actually engaged by a surface to air missile in iraq and it locked onto my engines and my navigator just yelled break right and i just did the emerge i just did the exact drill that i have practiced so many times before and okay, it was scary because it was in the middle of the night, it was pitch black and there was a heat-seeking missile locked onto us. But ultimately, by doing what we've been taught to do, your brain follows the plan. And he didn't say, oh my gosh, there's a service to a missile launch. He said, break right. That is a trigger for a response. Um, I landed an aircraft in Canada on a, a flooded runway. And when I engaged my thrust reverse, we spun through about um, 120 degrees. We're now going backwards down the runway. And rather than yelling, oh my gosh, this is horrific, he said, loss of directional control. That's a drill. So I instantly went into the response that you get when you have loss of directional control on the runway. He then did say, I'm not ejecting yet, which wasn't quite as positive, I'll be brutally honest, because then I thought, well, I hadn't even thought about that. My goodness, that's a bit of a shocker. Um, so yeah, so I'd say a lot of it is the planning, but also when you also think about it, something that the aviation world as a whole, not just the military have started to do is recognizing the power of human factors training. So they are teaching you all the toolbox of skill sets from decision-making under pressure to how to increase your situational awareness to teamwork, communication skills, leadership, all of those things we're now taught outside of the simulator, outside of flying so that you've now got layers of resilience that you can apply to the situation that is not directly in, you know, in the planning of that actual situation itself. 
So I think it's a mixture of the two things. We've, we've got very good at that that training side of things. Absolutely. And I fully concur with all the stuff we teach around dealing with pressure. There's definitely the desensitization of repetition is probably the most powerful in, in anything that you fear, whether it's going up at heights or getting on a plane or public speaking. The more repetition you do, the more you desensitize from the stress response. I think the planning element that you talked around, like, have set plays, have standard operating procedures, have trigger words that in the event of something happening, your brain goes into autopilot, excuse the pun, to be able to, you know, know what's coming next. But then there's that human factors element you talked around, and we teach a lot of techniques here at T2, like the ABC technique, acknowledge, breathe, control. We look at how you compartmentalize psychologically and chunk up a bigger problem into a smaller problem, you know, and... And there's lit breathing techniques, you know, there's the open gaze, having a getting your head up and having a look at the bigger picture, you know. So there's lots of psychological interventions you can apply as well. And I think it's a mixture of all of them, isn't it? That yeah. helps you cope with a situation or a or or, a, or a, an event which can be highly stressful. Um so yeah. And if you're like me, Mandy, fly, flying a jet six hundred miles an hour into combat is probably became quite um standard for you, whereas it's the it's the smaller complexities in life, like being a father to teenage daughters, that really test me, right? You know, so yeah. generally I say being a parent is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Uh, running a business, being in the military, doing yeah. things that usually would be stressful, being a public speaker, whatever it might be. But actually, parenting, there's no blueprint, so you're constantly going, "Am I getting this right? Am I getting it wrong? Who knows?" Right? We'll see at the end how they turn out. I guess, um, Mandy. To finish this pod, because uh, I'm not, I don't want to get too much from you before the retreat. So I think we've covered enough, and that's perfect. But um, if you was to ask me any question, what would you ask? Okay, so my thoughts with this one: you interview lots of people on your podcast. You've listened to lots of speakers at all your retreats, and some and, and an incredible wealth of knowledge. You know, from so many different sectors. If you were to pick one of the best highlights or key messages that you now apply as one of those tools or techniques that you've heard from someone else, what would be the one thing that you apply and that you do so regularly? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a good, so the way, when I was, before I set up my business, actually, I worked for a global consulting business called Gartner and they used to have an annual um, like kickoff, you know, leadership kickoff every every January. And we'd all land in Florida and it was very nice and we'd, there'd be a thousand people uh, and we'd have guest speakers come on and speak to us to motivate us for the year ahead. And I don't know if you've heard of this guy, but if if not, check him out. There's a, an ocean advocate, an ocean swimmer called Louis Pugh, P-U-G-H, no. a South African guy. And I'd, I'd not heard of him before he came. He came as a speaker and he's basically swimming in the polar ice caps and in, in seas which you shouldn't survive in to prove that they're heating up, basically. And he takes on lots of endeavors and challenges that are, are, are really tough. Um, but he's a phenomenal speaker. And he said a line in his in his speech that has always stayed with me and that I often use at certain times with mine and he said something along the lines of it is so important to to wrestle back control when you're under pressure and the only way to do that is to make decisions 
because decisions will lead to actions, which lead to outcome. And he finished with this line. He said, because after all, there is nothing more powerful than a decided mind. And that yeah. line of there is nothing more powerful than a decided mind has always stuck with me. And when I feel procrastinating or I feel like I don't know what to do or I feel under pressure or I, I think to myself, you've got an undecided mind, Martin, right now. You need yeah. to fa have a decided mind. So we have this technique called ABC. Acknowledge what's stressing me out. Breathe and take, you know, 60 to 90 seconds. And then the C is control. What do I control in the here and now to be able to move forward or past this? That will lead to decisions, which leads to actions and outcomes because there's nothing more powerful than a decided mind. So if that answers your question, I just thought it was a really crisp yeah. way of summing up inaction and procrastination. Yeah, I, I love that, actually. I don't know, I know exactly what you mean, because if you ever have that moment of feeling a bit out of control, you're feeling stressed, you feel sick, it's because you've got a decision that you need to make. So you're absolutely right. There is nothing more powerful than a decisive mind. I like that. Start using it myself. Yeah. Anybody wants to check him out, it's called Lewis Pugh and uh, P-U-G-H. He's a South African, uh, wonderful advocate for the oceans and for uh, for the climate. And um, I think he's an, a, an advisor to the UN at the minute. Um, loads of content online. I check him out. Great speaker. Wow. Um, Mandy. That was fab. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I'm looking forward to collaborating with you at the retreat in person um, and at some of our other engagements that we've got booked this year. I think they're going to love you. I think your energy that you're going to bring on the evening and the stories and the content is just going to be a fab way to finish the retreat. So looking forward to it. And hopefully we can have a glass of fizz together and share some stories of uh, our military days. Can't wait. Absolutely wonderful. Thanks so much for having me on, Martin. You're welcome, Mandy. We'll see you soon and we'll be back shortly with another T2 Hubcast. I'm here to welcome you to our very first T2 Leadership Retreat. How exciting is that? We're absolutely stoked to have you here. I was looking for events for me and the T2 team to go to and I wanted us to be developed because if we're going to be good at our jobs, we've got to stay ahead of the game. I was looking at all sorts. What, what could we go on that could immerse ourselves in development and challenges to the max? All I got was conference, 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 a lot of speakers, you go to events, you drink loads of coffee, you play with your phone, you go out, the exhibitor lounges outside, and basically you just get drunk on an evening. That's the usual conference sort of routine. I don't think you learn a lot from that. and I really don't. I, I'm very anti-conference. So I started to look for stuff and there was literally nothing out there. Nothing that was intimate, that was kinesthetic, that was hands-on, that challenged you just enough without making you feel too uncomfortable. And that spread around the activities from workshops to challenges to speakers. And I thought, let's create one. So the T2 Leadership Retreat was born in my head and I thought this idea of bringing 40 to 50 people together over a three-day period and for an immersive experience, I thought that's got to be something that you will take away and remember for the rest of your life. The sessions are, and everything's been kind of curated. There's a really nice ebb and flow to each day. Who's going to be talking about you in 20 years' time? Who's going to tell a story about the impact you had, no matter how small, on their life, their career? the moment of need. Because in the absence of that, have we shown great leadership? Have we actually truly made a difference? I think it's just kind of reminded me of all of those kind of key things that I think you do know, but you don't always put into practice. It's about being self-aware, it's about being vulnerable, it's about understanding how teams work, 
and then collectively it's about going forward and driving high performance together. So you're going to be in for a, hopefully a three days which is different to anything you have experienced before. And what I'd like to say is if you come with us and bear with us, you will get as much value from this personal life, professional life, but you will take some reflections away and you'll be better and more rounded for it. Each experience will be different, but it will be of value. Throw yourselves in, be brave, be bold, be open and vulnerable. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. The next T2 Leadership Retreat will take place on the 7th to the 9th of May, 2024. To book your place on the Ultimate Leadership Development Experience from the People Performance People, or for more information, please visit www.trans2performance.com.